Welcome to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries, a Christ-centered conversation that will encourage and inspire you to live a better life. Now let's join Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. Hello, I'm Galen Jones, your host, and you're listening to Hacks for Life. And I'm here with Scott Rahi, and we're going to be talking about discussing the evidences against, now make sure I have this right, Scott, against evolution. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, super. Yeah, this is, I guess this will be what, part nine of an ongoing discussion about evolution, and the, the umbrella that goes over it is that I'm convinced that evolution does not disprove Christianity. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about what evolution is. We've looked at you know various definitions and that sort of thing. We went through a series of uh, discussions that we looked at the evidence for evolution that's often presented by people who are advocates of that position. Nope. By no means did I go through all of it. I mean, there's there's right. very you know detailed sort of scientific stuff that I skipped. Um, and now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about is there evidence against evolution? And I, you know, for me, when I've read this stuff, like I told you, I, I started the beginning of this journey for me was that evolution is true and it doesn't disprove Christianity, that the two are compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's where you started. That was my starting point whenever okay. I began re- really sort of reading into this. And the funny thing is, I started the experience, I started doing this because at the time, William Lane Craig, he's got a, a ministry. Um, called Reasonable Faith. And mm-hmm. he's got these chapters that are all around the world where people have like local groups that get together to discuss apologetics. There's, a, there's one or two here in the Dallas area. Okay. And I I wanted to be one of the guys that was part of one of those. And he had a sort of a book that he said, you need to read through this. And here's the different topics you need to consider. And this was one of them. Okay. So just just to, for my clarification, mm-hmm. so you, uh, they have like chapters, I guess. Chapter, yeah, like a, lo- like a local a branch, a local of, group, of the group of the, yeah. that's going to yeah. be discussing apologetics. Yep, and you were going to lead one of these. Is there a leader? How does that? There are leaders. It, I it mean, was I don't want to get you know off off our. I wasn't trying topic. to become a leader necessarily, but I wanted to be an educated member. Okay. So I, you know, here's the stuff that the people would read that are going to attend this because these are the areas that will be discussed. Okay, I'm going to read some of this stuff ahead of time, and okay. that was kind of what started me on this path okay. of this topic. Now, do they do this virtually, or do they well, meet together? Well, they together? do both. They do both. Okay, um, cool. But the matter of fact, if you go to the Cottonwood Creek Church over on 121 and 75 in the Allen area, mm-hmm. um, they've got, a, they've got a, a group that meets there, I think, on Tuesday nights. I think okay. it's on Tuesday nights. So cool. it's, and it's about 30, 35 people, so it's a pretty good group. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I got started. Okay. And as I started reading through this, I... Um, began to see holes or what I, you know, in my semi-educated, you know, because I'm not a biologist, but reading this stuff, I'm, I'm thinking this, this doesn't make sense in this. And I began to see people who were uh, and are, you know, trained in this field come out and say, you know what, it's it's not as strong a case for evolution as people are making out to believe. And it was at the same time that Michael Behe was beginning to come out with his intelligent design stuff. And then there was Stephen Meyer that started coming out with it and uh, William Dembski who at the time I think was from Baylor University. And it just kind of came, it sort of evolved from there. So what I've done here is I've sort of collected a list of various um, evidences that I think argue against evolution. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd just go through some of these because I don't think it's just a matter of 
looking at their case and saying that doesn't persuade me that may be what somebody does and that's okay but there's also reasons when when someone says why are you not persuaded or convince me that evolution is false you can also say well here's a here's a positive reason to you know maybe think that this isn't you know real Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where I think we'll start. And I don't know how long this will take, but I, I've got you know several of them that I want to go through. Okay. Well, let's get it. The first thing, and this is a recent, very recent for me. I'm reading a book um, by a – he's a, a, a medical doctor. His name is Jeffrey Simmons. And the book is called Billions of Missing Links. Um, and I started reading it, and it's literally the very, very beginning of the book. And it was interesting enough as, a, as an introduction that I thought I would just read it. Now, you you, you do realize that in most of our conversations, you're the always in the, the beginning. I read the first five pages of most every book, and then I just move on. No, no, no. I've read a lot of this book. This is just from the beginning oh, of it. Okay. So. And it's actually in the foreword. Um, but... Uh, and the the subheading of the of the title of the book is a rational look at the mysteries that evolution can't explain, and what he what he does in the beginning here is he discusses. Now he's a doctor. You said. He's a doctor, okay. a medical doctor. Um, he discusses sort of the the um, the creation of a child, the birth of a child, sort of that leads up to the birth of a child, and all of the intricacies that are tied into that. And if you listen, if you read this, it's just like how could all this occur through uh, common descent through survival of the fittest through you know mm-hmm. you know all these all these sort of things. So let me just read it. It's a you know a couple of pages long, but to me it's it sets the stage really well. Okay. Um, he starts by saying, at a very precise moment, nine months after conception, a hormone leaves the unborn child's brain. It travels across the placenta, enters the maternal circulation, and makes its way to the mother's pituitary gland. Although this hormone is a very complicated and convoluted chemical, its message is quite simple. I'm ready, start the delivery process. My lungs have matured enough to breathe on their own. My heart is strong enough to assume control. My gastrointestinal tract is prepared to process food and my brain is eager to start learning about the world. My 10 trillion cells are poised to work together. It's the unborn child not the mother who makes this decision. Wow. The mother and child orchestrate the journey together. This is not a spontaneous event. The mother's body began preparations the instant the sperm entered a selected egg. One might even argue that her body began preparing at puberty or even at the time of her birth. Her uterus, now enormously stretched to accommodate uh, the growing fetus, is ready to squeeze down and push. The baby's head has been shifted downward with its arms at its sides and its legs tucked so that it can more easily pass through the birth canal. Only 3.5% of human babies present feet first or breech. The mother's breasts are engorged with food. Endorphins are flowing to help with the discomfort. Hormones are giving her strong maternal instincts. Her vagina has secreted a a special glycogen to prevent infection. A connection between the pelvic bones loosens to help the bony part of the canal expand. Every maternal instinct has been primed. Every f- every system is focused on success. At first, the contradictions come. Or sorry, at first the contractions come slowly, as if the uterus were warming up. But they quickly crescendo to more frequent and forceful squeezes. A myriad of different chemicals and hormones prompt 
and support every action as billions of muscle cells work in unison to break the, the bag of waters, dilate the opening in the cerv uh, cervix, and deliver the child. This journey is often cited as the most dangerous moment in a person's life. Indeed, it might be, yet every aspect of the process is well-coordinated, prearranged, rehearsed for millennia, and designed to bring a new life into being. Even the seams in the baby's skull bones have not yet fused so that its unusually large head will be pliable enough to make it through. As the process unfolds, the adrenal glands add a blast of stress hormones to help the infant cope. The newborn child will not breathe until it has cleared the birth canal. Anything sooner would lead to certain suffocation. It also will not wait too long. Rising carbon dioxide levels and falling oxygen concentrations will prompt that first breath. Otherwise, there could easily be permanent brain damage. The old slap on the behind belongs to the cinema. The inner workings of every newborn know precisely when to breathe, how deeply to breathe, and how to clear the debris inhaled from the amniotic sac. Moments before mother and child completely disconnect, the newborn receives a last-minute blood transfusion from the umbilical cord. The placenta, which has been purposefully storing nutrients for this moment, infuses extra nourishment, and there is evidence that the fetus sends some of its own stem cells into the mother's bloodstream. These newly discovered microchimera stem cells seem to be perfectly, or sorry, seem to be purposefully left behind to help maintain the mother's good health. The child's survival might depend on it. Every step is pre-programmed. -pre Medical folks like to say they deliver a baby, but mostly they catch it. As the newborn takes its first breath, two tiny flaps inside of its heart automatically close off a hole between the right side and the left side of that organ, which then routes unoxygenated blood to the newly functioning lungs. A large blood vessel that connects the aorta to the lungs also automatically seals off. The artery in the umbilical cord shifts to servicing the new bladder. The placenta detaches on cue and follows the baby out. If it were to precede the child or detach prematurely, the consequences could be disastrous. Soon the baby's remnant of the umbilical cord dries up and falls away. If any of these steps were to fail to occur or did not follow the right order, the human race would never have existed. They are a complex, all-or-none phenomenon, an improbable collection of coincidences. Wow. If I read just that and I don't do anything else, it's very difficult for me to come away and say, all the way through all through time and and uh, chance and evolutionary development somehow all this stuff just happened yeah that doesn't make any sense to me at all yeah um and i thought when i read that i thought you know that's a really good sort of approachable summary of the immense complexity that we're talking about here it's not as simple you know darwin used to think a single cell was a very simple thing it's not. It's got millions and millions and millions of bits of information in it. And it, and then you expand it to here. And it's just like, it staggers the imagination. Yeah, it's, it's almost crazy. I, yeah. I think I shared this in a previous conversation uh, that we were having. But um, with our first child, um, and, and at that stage, I'm a relatively new Christian mm -hmm. at that time. I didn't become a Christian until a believer until I was uh an adult so um 
But we were doing this, you know, Lamaze thing mm-hmm. where the husband or, or the father of the child witnesses or helps the the wife through the process. Yep. And so they they tell you all not they don't get into nearly that detail, but mm-hmm. they talk about how the baby's going to come down, his head's going to turn, yeah. and and all this. And so I'm watching this, and I, I the the nurse is there, and and you know I'm, I'm looking, and she says, okay, look here, the the they call it crowning, you mm-hmm. know, that top of the head, you could see her. her uh, my first child is, is a girl, so mm-hmm. so, um, and then you could see it go. And it, it was just, I, I just stood there and was going, what? that is yeah. crazy. Just And I'm only seeing the part where, you know. Yeah, the part that's visible from the yeah, outside. And then, yeah, and then, you know, the baby, you know, it's, it, it was it was so funny because the baby, had, it's got its head, you know, and it's just, she's just sitting there kind of not looking around, but, you know, her, her head's there. And I, right, it was, it was yeah. just, I was going, there, there has to be a God. It's, I, I, there has to be a God. Yeah. Uh, just so I, I, I appreciated the the details there of yeah. uh, of that reading. Wow. Yeah, th- this guy. I mean, the thing that he brings to the table is a doctor, and so he understands from that perspective. He's got another book called What Darwin Didn't Know. That's his first book. Um, but this one's basically saying, look, just look at this one little bit here. Look at the uh, just the chain of things that would have to happen to prepare a complex organism like a baby or a mother. To sort of reach this point, yeah. and and you're saying all of this happened without design. It's yeah, just I mean, something that occurs by this next generation has this feature, and this next generation adds this additional feature, and these are all positive changes, and you arrive here. Yeah, I just yeah, it's and critters it's beyond my do ability. the same. Right? Sure, I mean, course. I mean, you've got uh, you know dogs, cats, oh, and, absolutely, you know, mammals in general. Yeah, sure, they, they all they all have that same process. Going. Yeah, wow, it, it's just to me, it's not believable, and I think. If I had to just pick one thing, I could just stop there and go, yeah, it's not, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's a much stronger case than that. So let me talk about, I think we'll probably have time to talk about one other, and it's another quote that I want to read. Um, one of the things about the probability that we, that evolution, unguided evolution, and I want to be clear about that, if God used evolutionary processes there was a mind behind the process. An intelligence. And, in, and a yeah. guided evolution is not incompatible with Christianity. And that's possible. I mean, I, have, I don't have any issues with that. That, that you know, you can be a Christian and believe those things. We're only talking about unguided processes that we think it just doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, like, like if it just, we were, we're a product of an explosion or something. something like we, yeah. I don't remember what we were, yeah. a few conversations back, the technical uh, words that you were using, but, you know... Um, we're, we're not just when they tried to do the chemicals in the in the in the lab and yeah the Miller-Urey experiment yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, it it just yeah it's just <laughs> yeah and, and I think you might be referring back to and I, I'm I paraphrase it but the quote is something like to believe something like that is to believe that a random explosion in a junkyard will assemble a 747 airplane something like <laughs> something along something along those lines yeah it's pretty crazy so this next one is and I've got these sort of as headings in the on my notes here and the next one is evolution is it's effectively a mathematical impossibility um, there's an author his name is Douglas Axe um, and he works for the Discovery Institute out in Seattle and he wrote a book called Undeniable he's a he's a um, you know he studies evolutionary uh, development and just kind of he, he's a 
I don't exactly don't know exactly what his credentials are, but he is a scientist. I think he's a biologist. I could be wrong about that, but it's a really solid book where he talks about the mathematical um, challenges if we are to believe in evolution. So, what are the chances that one of these changes would be a fortunate change and would lead to a different? like an improved species and over time they accumulate and suddenly have a different species and a different species and a different species. Um, He calculated that the chance or the likelihood of one improvement to select uh, the the, the words I have here to select a sequence which is useful. So in other words, these these changes that we're talking about, hey, I inherit a change that's that's an improvement. The chances of that uh, occurring is one in 10 to the 77th power. It's 10 with with 77 zeros behind it, um, which is effectively zero. There are changes that occur, but they aren't improvements they're they're defects you know that's where cancer comes from mm-hmm. that sort of thing but he's calculated it out and the chances that one of these changes that occurs is a an improvement is 1 in 10 to the 77th power which is it's it's hard to even calculate or understand how small of a chance that is and that's just one change but well, um, we do know about the changes that happen like you said the, the when it doesn't go correctly oh yeah then most no. every change like that is a mutation. Mm-hmm. It's a negative change, and it hurts. Yeah. It hurts us, and it doesn't help us. Right, right. So the chances that it will help us is ten and uh, one in ten to the seventy seventh, and that's just for one improvement. Imagine all of the changes for all of the life forms multiplied by this improbability. So I've got however many millions of changes have to happen for this complex organism to develop. And each one of those is 1 in 10 to the 77th power as far as the un- unlikelihood of it. And then you multiply that across all the different possible life forms. And the improbability is to the point that it's not even worth discussing mathematically. If any, if there was not, you know, people that present this and say this is true, they do so as an alternative explanation that allows them to escape believing in God. If that was not what was at stake here... I am fully convinced that people would have moved on and said, yeah, evolution is not the answer. But there is a theological component to this where they believe the only way they can keep God, you know, I mentioned before, we can't allow a theological foot in the door. Mm -hmm. I think it was um, Richard Lewontin who did that quote. Um, That's what they're trying to do here. And so they're going to go as far as they need to and, and reach completely absurd levels in order to achieve this. And I'm going to read this. This will need to go a little bit longer. I want to read. Uh, there's a guy named David Gallertner who is a computer. He's a he's an instructor, I believe. He's a computer scientist, and um, he wrote in CNS News. He wrote an article called "But What If Darwin Was Wrong," and he is. Um, I've seen him. He's got some some scholarly you know discussions and stuff. He's a very sharp man, and he talked about this improbability. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read this, and then we'll probably let you know wrap up this this conversation this this one after that. He says, um, "How to make proteins is our first question. Proteins are chains, linear sequences of atom groups, each bonded to the next. A protein molecule is based on a chain of amino acids. 150 elements is a modest-sized chain. The average is 250. Each link is chosen ordinarily from one of 20 amino acids." 
A chain of amino acids is a polypeptide, peptide being the, the type of chemical bond that joins one amino acid to the next. Imagine a 150 element protein as a chain of 150 beads. Each bead is chosen from 20 varieties, but only certain chains will work. Only certain bead combinations will form themselves into stable, useful, well-shaped proteins. So how hard is it to build a useful, well-shaped protein? Can you throw a bunch of amino acids together and assume that you will get something good? Or must you choose each element of the chain with painstaking care? It happens to be very hard to choose the right beads. Your task is to invent a new gene by mutation, by the accidental change of one codon to a different codon. You have two possible starting points for this attempt. You could mutate an existing gene or mutate gibberish. You have a choice because DNA actually consists of valid genes separated by long sequences of nonsense. Most biologists think that the nonsense sequences are the main source of new genes. If you tinker with a valid gene, you will almost certainly make it worse, to the point where its protein misfires and endangers or kills its organism, long before you start making it better. The gibberish sequences, on the other hand, sit on the sidelines without making proteins, and you can mutate them so far as we know without endangering anything. The mutated sequence can then be passed on to the next generation where it can be mutated again. This mutation can, or the, uh, sorry, thus mutations can accumulate on the sidelines without affecting the organism. But if you mutate your way to an actual valid new gene, your new gene can create a new protein and thereby potentially play a role in evolution. Now at last we are ready to take Darwin out for a test drive. Starting with 150 links of gibberish, what are the chances that we can mutate our way to a, to a useful new shape of protein? We can ask basically the same question in a more manageable way. What are the chances that a random 150 length sequence will create such a protein? Nonsense sequences are essentially random. Mutations are random. Make random changes to a random sequence and you get another random sequence. Mm -hmm. So close your eyes, make 150 random choices from your 20 bead boxes and string up your beads in the order in which you chose them. What are the odds that you will come up with a useful new protein? It's easy to see that the total number of possible sequences is immense. It's easy to believe, although non-chemists must take their colleagues' word for it, that the subset of useful sequences, sequences that create real usable protein, is in comparison tiny. But we must know how immense and how tiny. The total count of possible 150 link chains, where each link is chosen separately from 20 amino acids, is 20 to the 150th power. In other words, many. 20 to the 150th power equals 10 to the 195th power. And there are only 10 to the 80th power atoms in the universe. <laughs> what portion of these polypeptides are useful proteins? Douglas Axe did a series of experiments to estimate how many 150 long chains are capable of stable folds, of reaching the final step in the protein creation process, and of holding their shapes long enough uh, to be use useful. Axe is a distinguished biologist with five-star breeding. He was a graduate student at Caltech, then joined the Center for Protein Engineering at Cambridge. 
the biologists who work Meyer, uh, whose work Meyer discusses are mainly first-rate establishment scientists. And he's, Meyer is Stephen Meyer. He's, he's talking about his book, I think Signature in a Cell is the book he's talking about. He estimated, he's talking about Axe again, he estimated that of all 150 link amino acid sequences, one in 10 to the 74th power will be capable of folding into a stable protein. To say that your chances are one in 10 to the 74th power is no different in practice from saying that they're zero. It's not surprising that your chances of hitting a stable protein that performs some useful function and might therefore play a part in evolution are even smaller. Axe puts them at 1 in 10 to the 77th power. In other words, immense is so big and tiny is so small that neo-Darwinian evolution is, so far, a dead loss. Try to mutate your way from 150 links of gibberish to a working, useful protein, and you are guaranteed to fail. Try it with 10 mutations, a thousand, a million, you fail. The odds bury you. It can't be done. Wow. Now, that's a lot of stuff right there. It's a lot. And Gallertner is not speaking to people that are, you know, just trying to simply sort of gloss over the surface. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, he's. it's a difficult, you need to read it a few times. And yeah. go, okay. He's trying to dumb it down with beads and, and that sort of a thing. But the thing to take away from that is... People, it ain't happening. That's what I'm taking. Yeah, that's exactly that's what, what I'm you take going, away from it. That's what I'm taking away. People that, that say, well, evolution, well, it's very unlikely. And what you'll see is you'll see people say, well, we're here, so it must have happened. It must have, yeah. And that's just, it's, it's something called begging the question. You assume that your answer is true, and then you proceed from there. It's not, that's not legitimate argument. That's not legitimate thought process. You need to start with... It, it, what's the likelihood of this? Yeah. And I think Darwin, you know, 150 years ago, could look at certain things and say, "This is fairly simple. This is fairly simple." You know, it's probably reasonable for him to say some of this. And there, like I say, there are certain things that that we can show. You know, breeding of sheep and dogs and that sort of thing. But he he extrapolated that and he said, "Oh yeah, this other evidence is going to show up. We're going to find that this is is true." And it's not. It's Actually, not, we've gone the, ro- the in other fact, direction. It's exactly the opposite. Yeah, 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 we've gone the other direction. Yeah. And that's so. That's two of them uh, that I want to go through. There's several more that I want to go through. So let's stop here. Okay. And then let's let's pick up with some of the more evidences that we would use to say this is why evolution probably isn't true. Yeah, because I wouldn't be able to. I mean, all I would be able to say is. It ain't happening. Right. I mean, the complexity is just do what overwhelming. I do. Whenever I get in these conversations, I don't say this stuff off the top of my head. Whenever I get in these conversations, I pull these quotes out, and I just place them out there and say, "Let's talk about this quote." And we're both. I actually have a, I actually have a document that I've created, and it's it's grown to like forty or fifty pages in length, and it's called "Quotes That I Use Often." So I just grab a, the quote that's relevant and I plug it in, and I have pages and pages and pages of that stuff now. So anybody can have access to that if I'd they be happy wanted to. Sure, if somebody yeah. wants it, I don't yeah. know how you're going to get it out there to them. I put it on the Facebook page or something. Yeah, again. Or, or we could, you know, people could request it. People that want it, yeah. yeah. So yeah, cool. I'm, ha- I'm happy to share it. Okay, look forward to the to uh, the next conversation. I'll be here. All right. You've been listening to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. The James Group is a nonprofit, Christ centered organization that seeks to serve the community by offering skilled, caring support for anyone in need. For help, call 972 243 4673. That's 972 243 
1-800-242-4673. For questions and comments, email Galen at jamesgroupministries.net. That's G-A-L-O-N at jamesgroupministries.net. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Hacks for Life with Galen Jones.